Here's your host, Alex Garrett. Here's your host, Alex Garrett. Ladies and gentlemen, you could have been anywhere in the world tonight, but you're here with us in New York City. Are you ready? I know I am. Hey, I'm Alex Garrett, your host for this episode and everything Alex Garrett Podcasting. And this podcast specifically focuses on topics that should be trending. And, well, you know what they say, right? Oh, if the shoe fits, wear it. Well, that line means so much to me. Find out why next on Alex Garrett Podcasting, where we wear that shoe proudly. Each and every day, as always, I'm Alexander Garrett. Happy Tuesday night. Uh, two weeks till I'm 29. That's just a side note. Uh, but more importantly, the president is home. More importantly, this debate tomorrow night is, is on people's minds. Uh, I guess Trump released uh, authorized release of Hillary documents, which is interesting. Um, but most importantly, I have something on my heart before I get to Dr. Fami Farah from uh, Fort Worth, Texas. Actually, she's originally a Bronx girl, so we'll figure out how she got from the Bronx to Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, we'll talk some sports, some presidential health, and uh, so much more. But I'm really going to continue this and see how we can do it. But Because my alma mater, Queens College, as you know, is celebrating its 83rd birthday this week, and uh, it needs your help. With COVID-19 hitting hard, um, it's uh, it's been tough to fundraise, and so I'm not usually a booster, but I can't help myself this time. Because for Queens College, the Queens College Foundation has established a critical needs fund to help address current and future challenges. It'll help the entire college community of Queens through this crisis beyond and beyond by providing scholarships, paid internships, funding for existing programming programs and opportunities, and support for new initiatives set forth by Queens College's administration. So if you listen to this and you did go to Queens College, if you happen to be following this, join me in supporting Queens College's efforts. Join me in giving back to a place that has given us so much over the last years um, that we were there. And uh, what else was weighing on my mind? Okay, so President Trump says, don't be afraid. I'm going to talk about this in a second. Says, don't be afraid of the virus. He's on point. We cannot let that determine our lives. Where he did miss out, though, was he should have said, but proceed with caution. We never did win World War II by not being precise. The beaches of Normandy were not stormed in some chaotic way. They were precision. They were precise. The atom bomb, one of the most changing things to defend our country, was precision. Despite what they tell you, it was precise in what happened there to avenge Pearl Harbor. Now we must be as equally precise, equally precision. It doesn't mean close everything off. What it does mean is tell people if you cannot maintain six feet apart, use the mask. If you go indoors, 
use the mask, especially if there's no air filter situation there. That is the right messaging. I agree with do not be afraid. But to tell someone they can beat it, it, it's not always the case. And so I know some of my conservative friends are like, but we don't want the mask. It's personal liberty. Well, at this point, I think encouraging to wear the mask, again, not mandating, encouraging it is the answer. Because when you say don't be afraid, then you'll have people still out there. I remember a couple weeks ago, in Times Square, they were congregating for Showtime New York City. You know how that goes, right? In Times Square. I didn't know if they were masked or not. I just know for a city that's so worried about social distancing, there was none in Times Square that night. And of course, there was no enforcement of social distancing. So, I digress. And right now, I'm very honored to welcome Dr. Fami Farah, a cardiologist down in Texas, Fort Worth, and she has some thoughts on the president, college football, and just how we're doing in the fight against COVID. Well, this is a very special treat. We have a, another amazing doctor joining us today. She's a cardiologist out of Fort Worth, Texas. As a matter of fact, she's a former New Yorker, which I found out when we first uh, introduced uh, each other. Dr. Fami Farah, thanks for joining me tonight. Well, thank you so much for having me, Alex. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Now, you are originally a Bronx gal, so tell us how this cardiologist from the Bronx ends up in Texas. That's an interesting first <laughs> take. That's correct. I actually grew up in Bronx, uh, New York. Um, I actually went to PS95 um, school for elementary and middle school. Cool. So my uh, parents, you know, they migrated from Bangladesh uh, when I was very little. And uh, my dad was actually a student. He was um, going to pharmacy school at the time in New York. Um, and uh, so that's how we were in New York. And, um, you know, we lived there for uh, many years. And then as I was finishing up middle school, so I actually completed eighth grade in New York, that's when my parents decided that they wanted to move away from New York, the cold weather. It was a sure. decision made by my parents. So they came to Texas because they believed they had some family friends and uh, some other contacts in Texas. They liked it once they visited. Cool. So we moved to Fort Worth and I've been in Fort Worth since. Um, the funny thing is like that was a pretty critical age for me you know i was in the eighth grade i was throwing as much tantrums as i could possibly throw so yeah i was not for the move but now here i am texan well so your dad was <laughs> you say he was a um a pharmacist and whatnot growing up did that whole thing get you into medicine is that how you ended up in in the medical field or what what drove you to become a cardiologist Actually, the reason I went into medicine is because of my family background. It's because I have a lot of family members who underwent cardiovascular disease. I had to, uh, who had cardiovascular disease and underwent like surgeries and things like that, lots of hospitalizations. So I kind of grew up seeing that as a kid. We lost 
a lot of um, family members to heart disease uh, at young age, uh, primarily males of the family. So I kind of grew up seeing that. And, you know, as a little kid, every time I went to the hospital and I saw the amount of hope a doctor was able to bring in a vulnerable moment like that is what really um, encouraged me to want to take that route. And now you are a cardiologist. Tell me how frustrating it must have been when people were told, don't, don't take a look at your heart because of COVID. Don't, don't call anybody. It felt like we got that messaging, didn't we? That if you had heart attacks or anything else, don't even bother because you might get COVID. I, I don't know. That's how I kind of saw the coverage. Yeah. Initially, you know, this pandemic, we went through lots of waves, you know, um, at the beginning, um, you know, New York was uh, the epicenter, really. Mm -hmm. And we saw what you guys went through. Um, at the beginning, people were really afraid to go out in general. Definitely, they were afraid to go to the hospitals. Uh, we were across the nation, really. Uh, we were at capacity at hospitals dealing with just COVID patients. So initially, we really didn't even have enough room to see patients other than COVID, uh, we were having to bring in, you know, like we're scrambling for supplies. We didn't have enough PPEs to even see the mm -hmm. COVID patients. So yes, at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a sense of discouragement from patients going to the hospital uh, for other reasons. If they could avoid it, they were asked to avoid it. Right. But that backfired because um, as we got a better handle of the uh, pandemic, not so much the virus itself, but at least how to handle the PPEs to get more supplies, to create more hospital beds. Uh, we realized that patients and people in general became so afraid that they were not coming into the hospital right. for other reasons, period. And that's when we ran into problems with, you know, people having heart attack and dying from causes other than COVID. And that was not good. So now, you know, we've been trying really hard as a medical community to push that message out that, you know, you absolutely need to go to the hospital, especially for serious conditions like heart attack and stroke. Well, and a lot of hospitals, especially in Texas, are reopened. And I think it's important people know that if they don't already. Um, we are a few months into this. I know we're getting a second wave here in New York again. Spikes are happening. But... Do you still find that there's still a messaging of don't go to the hospital or has there been a different message now saying, yes, you have to take care of yourself? Like what what are you seeing in Texas as far as other healthcare besides COVID concerns? You there, Fima, uh, Fami? You there? Um, no, I think the message now, at least from the medical community, has been pretty consistent. We've tried, we've all been trying um, equally to get the message out that you need to come to the hospital for non-COVID related uh, stuff as well. Um, it, it is difficult to convince people uh, because, you know, the fear factor is there and people know that we still don't have a cure, still the vaccine right. is not out. Uh, so the fear is definitely what's driving the whole avoidance of going to healthcare facilities. Right. But you know, in the medical community as a whole, we are all working very hard to get that message out to come to the hospitals. And that's important. You know, I was just thinking about Texas, how some of your towns down there really went to extremes. I mean, you'd think a very red state, so to speak, would not be giving out fines and would think about personal liberty. But some of your towns did take this very serious, didn't they, early on? 
They did. Um, uh, they did. And, you know, you're right. Texas is a rather, mm -hmm. it, it's, the culture here is very different from New York. Um, we got um, a lot of patients gave us very, very difficult time at the beginning when it came to wearing masks. Um, it was very difficult to deal with that uh, until the state mandated masks. Um, you know, it was mandated in healthcare facilities at first by the individual healthcare facilities, but it, it was very difficult to implement that. You know, I'm a C, C, I'm the CEO of Bentley Heart Medical Center. Sure. So coming from that standpoint, I can tell you how difficult it was to implement. Uh, people were just not listening, but we're really grateful to um, the state and the governor for finally mandating it because that made it better. Well, personal liberty is, is really a big discussion around COVID, and I would say healthcare too. So what happens if someone still says, I'm not going to take care of this, or I'm not going to do this, that, or the other? It's like, do we have to risk losing a little personal liberty to stay safe at this time? That is a very important question. Uh, you know, what I will tell you, and this is coming strictly from a medical standpoint, Sure. COVID has nothing to do with personal liberty. It is a disease. It is a virus that doesn't care about personal liberty. It doesn't care about who you are or what your belief system is. It'll infect you. It's looking to infect you. The way the virus survives is by jumping from host to host to host. Right. And it'll find every opportunity to do so. So personal li liberty, you know, I'm a believer of personal liberty. We are all... Sure. You know, we all believe in freedom. We all love America. We're all American citizens. We all have pretty much the same ideals. But we have to understand the importance here that this is a virus that's waiting to infect you. It has nothing whatsoever to do with personal liberty. So I think we need to see these two things as two separate things as they are. All right. Well, I got to ask because this is the big story of the week. A week ago tonight, Trump's, you know, President Trump says, you know, you see Biden with the big mask and he's wearing this. Three days later, he gets the virus. But my first question isn't so much about Trump. It's the fact that Biden's tested negative. So they say this thing can be transmitted in the air if you're not six feet apart. They didn't look six feet apart at the debate. So how is it that if Trump had it maybe at the debate, Biden didn't get it? If, if you know, they're not wearing masks, they're talking to each other almost in their face. How was it Biden didn't get that? I'm kind of curious. Yeah, Um you know, it's not to say that 100% of the people will get infected. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not a 100% transmission rate, um, but uh, it is high prevalence. You know, the risk of transmission is very high. I'm glad that uh, Vice President Joe Biden has not contracted it yet. Uh, I, I believe it's still kind of early, actually, because the transmission can happen um, you know, for the first two weeks, that's the mm -hmm. quarantine period. So I think, I hope that, uh, um, you know, Joe Biden does not contract it. Sure. Um, but I think it's still early to tell the transmission period has not ended yet for him. And I would say the same for President Trump. You know, he's only at the hospital three days. Isn't it true? Some people have to stay in there the full two weeks or even a week. I mean, I think now's the big test. Everybody was like the 48 hours, this, the 48 hours. But now that he's home back at the White House, that's the big test, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, that is the big test. Um, so by getting out of the hospital, it means that he's out of the critical um, nature of the, of the virus. You know, they made sure that his lungs are not, 
you know, compromised that he's able to breathe. Okay. He's not requiring oxygen supplement anymore. Uh, but you are absolutely right about prevention. So even though he's out of the hospital, he's still infectious. He's still considered infectious. So he can still potentially spread to others. So even though he's home, which is the white house, he still needs to quarantine himself for the sake of others. Uh, so I think that that period, the, the quarantine period that we've defined, uh, he, he absolutely needs to maintain that. That would be the medical advice. But what about him personally? Does getting out of the hospital early keep him at risk still? I would think it does. It does, yes. Uh, unfortunately, um, you know, it does. Um, hopefully he's still under close observation. I'm sure he is by his physicians. Um, but yeah, uh, typically, especially because you know, he does fall under the high risk category because of his age, mm -hmm. uh, the fact that he's overweight, uh, all of those kind of go against him. Um, you know, we received little information about how really he did, um, the, the really important details that other medical professionals would need to assess the situation were not entirely available. What we did know is that he had fever. Uh, what we did know is that his oxygen saturation did drop. And the other information we had is the medications he, he was treated with. All three of those um, kind of point towards a more sick uh, patient because um, some of the medications he has received, like remdesivir and uh, sure. steroid, usually are not given to patients who are, it's not given to every infected COVID-infected patients who are in the hospital. Those medications are reserved for very ill patients who are hospitalized. Well, and I was going to say, I don't think Thursday was the only time he had it. You know, they say he got, but obviously if you test positive, you might have had it for a longer period of time than we know, right? I, that's always my impression of this. Th that is correct. Uh, he may have had it for a little bit longer than the time when he became symptomatic. And that's um that's dangerous because even if he didn't know it, it, it was there and, and who knows how the testing goes. I know a lot of negatives might actually be positive, but it's just... Positive, yes, that is it, correct. It's crazy. Yes, uh, that was actually, that has been in the discussion, uh, the question of for how long he's actually been test uh, positive. And, uh, and, you know, he did travel. Um, how many people are mm -hmm. potentially uh, at risk? Well, and you're a doctor and you're a cardiologist, but you would know body language. Seeing him, doesn't he still seem a little bit struggling to breathe? Like, I've been noticing that even when he was at the White House last night. Yes, his breathing does appear to be a little bit more labored. It is hard to assess, though, just by watching uh, through television. Um you know, so I I hope that he's under good observation by his physicians, which I'm sure he is. Maybe you can weigh in on this because I was actually utterly disgusted when people on the radical side of the left was very like, he should go now. This should be it. They should take him. It should take him. But the doctor, you know, the, the, the medical community, did they find, did you find many people who were sympathetic to him or were like, this guy had it coming? What, what was the medical community around you, especially uh, reacting to this? Well, it was both, actually. So a part of it was that it was not a surprise he got the infection because, um, you know, we saw him at many public events uh, where he was not uh, necessarily wearing a mask. Um, so it was not entirely a surprise that he contracted the virus. Um, but, you know, 
for the most part, everybody sentiment wise for, you know, wishing him well, uh, yeah. you know, people wanted him to recover well and uh, be safe, you know, like uh, part of the reason there's so much debate as to whether he should have been discharged when he was, was in fear of his health. Uh, would he be okay? And obviously it's a national security risk. I'm not going to ask about that because you're, you're in the uh, health realm, but it is a national security right. risk if our president is not well. But maybe you could weigh in on the fact that the vaccine could also be hijacked because I know other countries are trying to take up from us what we're developing. I mean, do you know anything about that or can you weigh in on that? Because that's a dangerous thing if they're trying to intercept some of our trials here. Right. Um, I'm not so sure that it will be hijacked uh, in the medical community. That's, uh, you know, we are honestly our concern more is related to how, uh, you know, the efficacy of the virus uh, when it the main concern is when it'll be coming out and when it'll be available to healthcare providers and the essential workers. But then the bigger concern is when will it be available to everybody? Like uh, that's a bigger concern, you know? Um, and the other uh, question we also have is how effective the virus will be for the population at large, because you know, typically uh, to develop a virus mm -hmm. under normal circumstances, it takes up to two years or longer. Uh, that's how much trial and time it requires. Uh, and this vaccine is coming out, uh, we're talking about in a few months. Uh, so that's why the majority of the talk that we have in the med medical community are uh, surrounding these topics, you know. Uh, Dr. Fami Faraj, who we're talking about, she's a board-certified uh, cardiologist. She's the CEO of Bentley Heart. Uh, down in Bentley Heart, I want to ask you about the the bed size and, and the ICU space now with the second wave possibly here and, and almost everywhere, it feels like. But before I get to that, coronavirus, obviously Trump has some heart issues too. There's there's some talk about that. But in general, how how affected can the heart get if you get COVID and you might have had pre-existing health uh, heart conditions, um, so COVID is affecting the heart uh, for both people who have pre-existing heart condition uh, and also for people who have no pre-existing heart condition. Even young people like athletes, I think you've heard it was um, quite a news um, just a week ago that lots of athletes who are young, high-functioning individuals are getting affected, uh, their mm -hmm. hearts are getting affected from COVID. So uh, those patients who are you know, of um, advanced age, typically above 60s, uh, or those patients who have pre-existing heart disease, uh, or those who have risk factors for heart disease like high blood pressure, diabetes, uh, smokers, all of these patients are at increased risk of having heart damage or uh, complications related to heart uh, as a result of COVID infection. Some of the heart conditions that we're seeing in really sick patients in the hospital and in the ICU uh, includes heart failure, uh, where in a heart is a pump, it's just not uh, pumping blood efficiently, and it goes into heart failure. Uh, one of the other things we're seeing is inflammation of the heart muscle itself. Uh, it's the other name for it, the medical name for it is called myocarditis. It's, um, we're seeing that quite often actually in both young and older individuals. 
and that's leading to arrhythmia. Arrhythmia is basically irregular heart rhythm where the heart can just go in erratic rhythm, especially if it comes from the bottom part of the heart, which is known as ventricular arrhythmia. It can cause cardiac arrest. We're seeing that in the hospital and also seeing that in young individuals. And that's part of the reason why some of the athletes are getting into trouble and we're seeing death as a result of this. One of the other things it's also causing is pericardial effusion, where um, that's a terminology for when fluid builds up around the heart muscle, uh, outside of the heart, and it can cause serious hemodynamic compromise for patients and can also cause death. So some serious conditions, uh, heart conditions, as a result of uh, COVID-19 we're seeing in both young and older individuals. I want to talk about the athletes too. I know you had written and, and talked about that as well. I mean, the Big Ten is going to come back later this month. Um, but I felt like the angle you took on that was it was a risk to bring back sports. No, or, or what was your take on that? There certainly is um, because we have uh, you know heard in the news and we're seeing lots of athletes getting affected. Not just the professional, you know, uh, like um, athletes Newton, like the Big Ten, yes, but a couple of days ago. Yes, uh, but also uh, high school uh, athletes, you know, with college athletes, all of these um, students and uh, sports um, personnel and, you know, athletes are at risk. And one of the things we're seeing is, you know, unfortunately, even those patients who are not very symptomatic when they were fighting the COVID infection, some of them had no symptoms at all. Even those are having um you know, problems with heart. And they're not pointing this out until they're on the field uh, with high endurance type activity. That's when they're getting into trouble. That's when they're symptomatic and realizing that they can't do what they were able to do prior to COVID. And um, that's something that is a concern, especially with schools opening up, uh, colleges opening up and, you know, uh, professional sports. Um, it is an issue that we think that we're going to deal with a lot more. And your state of Texas, you know, they love their sports, Friday Night Lights, the Cowboys. I mean, your your area is a hotbed for sports, so got to take Oh, uh, we are, caution. especially football, yes. Yeah. Well, but so that's the interesting part, right? They're all making contact with each other. They got to tackle. They got to make a pass. They got to do whatever. So, and they even have to touch each other's hands, you know. They're feeding the ball to them under the snap. So, in these tackles, how do we know it's not being transmitted, like, what is there a possibility that could happen in a play itself? Absolutely can. Um, and you're right. We don't know that transmissions are not happening. We have to assume that they are happening because okay. uh, especially in the state of Texas right now, our numbers are so high. Um, you know, we're second in the nation in terms of our uh, current numbers and they're growing, you know. Um, so we have to take the proper precautions. We have to uh, screen our uh, athletes. And, you know, the best thing coming from a medical professional, the best thing to do would be to avoid contact sports right now in the middle of a pandemic. That's the best thing. Right. But whether that will be heard by the community or not, uh, I don't know. And how practical it is for them also is, uh, is something to consider because, you know, for these athletes, if you tell them to sit out for a season or two, uh, I don't know how that goes for them. But from a medical standpoint, it is better to avoid contact sports right now. Well, this is interesting because also basketball has been a very contact sport. I actually almost laughed because 
you know, these guys are, you know, in basketball, they're rejecting the shot. They're really, you know, body on body trying to defend. But when they go to the bench, they're six feet apart. It's like, but that's not really making sense if they're already making contact on the court. I don't know. It was, it was just kind of a funny sight. Um, but I, I know what you mean, yes. Mm-hmm. Because when they're playing, when they're on the field, they're very close. It's contact yeah. sports. It doesn't matter how much space you're maintaining on the bench. <laughs> yeah, well, right. And all these NFL coaches are getting fined now for not wearing it. It's a mess. Um, I've got a personal thing. So luckily I haven't had this yet. But my my quote-unquote condition, I mean, I rolled it on one leg in New York, which is fun. And I've had pneumonia issues in the past. So I'm trying to stay very hypersensitive with this right now. But Vactoral, I have Vater syndrome, V-A-T-E-R. I know some in that community have the Vactoral, which is included in cardio. So if you want to take a minute, if you know of the that condition, Vactoral, Vater, tell us how those in the community can avoid this and, and how important it is for Vactoral patients um, to not get this right now. Well, um, you know, you are predisposed to having um, lung infections, which is pneumonia. And uh, one of the things we know with COVID is, um, you know, it is affecting the lungs. It's uh, the main reason people are getting into trouble is with breathing. They're having shortness of breath. Their blood oxygen level is dropping. The reason the blood oxygen level is dropping is because the infection is going to the lungs and is uh, not allowing the lungs to, uh, you know, do what it's supposed to do, like, you know, provide uh, oxygenation to the blood properly. And so um, you have to be extra careful. Um, You have to maintain immune health. You have to maintain all the precautions of, you know, avoiding um, contact um, or, you know, uh, going to public places, wearing masks and things like that, because your, you know, your immune system is slightly different and you are more predisposed to having infection in the lungs as it is. Yeah, I mean, I've not had, I've had pneumonia in the past. It's it's not fun, and so that kind of made me more sense, hypersensitive, I guess, to this thing. Um, but to be honest, when I'm not really around people or if I'm outdoors, I don't wear it on my roll blade because I need that air anyway. So I feel like you can find a balance with this, can't you? The mask versus not wearing a mask situation. It- there is uh, there is a fine balance, and it's very important for us to understand that balance and practice it. Um, for instance, if you're ever in an indoor setting and uh, you know you're in contact with people other than your household, um, then you should absolutely be wearing a mask um, anytime you're in the indoor setting. And you know this virus has been declared airborne in the indoor setting, so that means you have to. Um, Everybody should be universal masking, not just one person. Um, When you're outdoors, um, it's a little different story. When you're outdoors, if you're in a crowded area outdoors, you should still be wearing your mask. But in an outdoor setting, when there's not too many people around you and you have the social distancing maintained, you can take your mask off uh, when you're going on a hike, you know, like, and there's not too many people around you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You can take your mask off and breathe the fresh air. In fact, I've done that not too long ago, just a few weeks ago, I was in Seattle. Yeah, I actually went to visit my brother in Seattle. And, uh, you know, I was very nervous because this was the first time I traveled during the pandemic. Um, And uh, I was actually traveling by air. So it was kind of failed through a test. Um, So I 
I took every precaution when I went to the, because you know, you have to do your homework. You have to understand where the highest risk of transmission is. The highest risk of transmission was actually in the airport. So I had my N95 mask on. I was sure. wearing a face shield. I, uh, you know, had all my hand sanitization, uh, gloves, everything. I had everything on. Then I went into the, it, the next pl place is the plane itself inside the plane. So I did my homework with the airlines to see which airline was following the guidelines of, you know, um, so I, I took a, I, I paid, paid a higher price for my flight, but okay. I took a flight that was doing that. And then when I went uh, to Seattle, we went outdoors, I went hiking and it was totally fine. Uh, Cause you know, we made sure that there was not too many people around us and I didn't have my mask on and it was okay. It was a month ago. That's, that's great. And, uh, and no symptoms since obviously. So that's even better. No, no. Uh, and I've tested also. I, I mean, I had to, because um, I would be seeing patients. So I came back, um, I quarantined, I um, tested myself and it was negative. Dr. Farah, were you on the COVID floor or have you been on the COVID floor during all this? And what's that experience like for you? Yes, uh, very much so. I have been um, involved with taking care of COVID patients um, uh, because, you know, uh, a lot of COVID patients are also having heart problems. So mm -hmm. as a cardiologist, uh, I have to be pretty involved with that. It's pretty bad. Um, it's unlike anything I have ever seen in my uh, career or in my life for that matter. Uh, we went from, you know, a regular hospital floor, which means, you know, you, your patients are in the room, it's, it's normal to completely getting shut down. Like, you know, we have now warded off uh, the COVID units, especially the ICU. It, it's a different world. It, everybody's in their suits, you know, like mm -hmm. it, it almost feels like you're in space somewhere because you don't... Sure it's a different world. Um, one of the things that's also very impactful for patients and it's affecting physicians as well, um, mm. you know, from a psychosocial standpoint, yeah. Um, yeah, is the patients are very isolated, you know, like mm. we have limited contact with the patients. We are nursing staff, physicians, everybody's only going to the patient's room when needed so just to like, you know, minimize the spread that has an effect on the patients, you know, they're very isolated, family members are not allowed to visit. Um, right. And as physicians, it affects us too, because we are very much used to being hands on going to our patients, talking to them and providing them that kind of care, and not being able to do that and having to maintain that distance. It's difficult as physicians. Well, and this is my this leads into my next question, which would be, you are you've been on there, you you've seen the social the psych the psychological impact. So how do you sort of de-stress yourself at the end of the day? Like, how do you get out of that and, and stay cheered? Because you're very upbeat right now. So how do you stay upbeat throughout the day after what you just saw two minutes ago, literally yeah. on the COVID floor? It's very difficult. Um, it has definitely taken a toll um, from a psychological standpoint. I think it has on every single healthcare provider. One of the ways I have been trying to, um, you know, relieve myself of uh, that level of, um, you know, psychological problems is when I come home, I try to focus on the positives, you know, like I try to see how many patients I was able to help, and mm. uh, that they're going to be hopefully better off tomorrow as a result of what I did. That's one. And that's what I think of as I drive home, you know, as I drive home, it's like a debriefing that goes through my head. Wow. And then once I get home, I try to completely remove myself from the healthcare side of things. I 
try to do things that I enjoy. You know, I like to sing. So I, I actually had stopped singing for some time, but sure. during the pandemic, I picked back up on singing because it's a huge stress relief for me. Um, I started painting again uh, during the pandemic. Uh, those were some of my hobbies. I, I, because you know, I was so busy, I had not had the time to do so for the last, you know, before the pandemic for a while, but I restarted all of those. I started, um, I'm writing a cookbook, so I've, awesome. a healthy cookbook. So started becoming more productive, in other words, uh, putting my energy and thoughts to other things to take my mind off. Well, and painting really is like a good a good strategy, right? To get your mind off that. And I, I find that with writing, right? So instead of scrolling, I'd rather find that the movement of the hand, even through writing, is just so cathartic right now. It's just something it is. different. Because obviously you and I and everybody else scrolls through our phones and tries to escape that way. But sometimes literally getting hands-on with, with what the activity you're doing is so much better than scrolling. So that... It is. And, you know, getting away from that screen time is important, too, for our health. Um, you know, exercising. So I've been doing a lot of that, uh, walking every day to maintain a good health during this pandemic. Now... I see that you studied in Lubbock, Texas. So I got to ask you this: Are you an AM A and M fan? Are you what what fan are you? And are you a big college football fan down there? Because Lubbock is like the oh town boy, that college. is a that is a big question because it's funny because I get that question actually asked a lot. I went to Lubbock, Texas, uh, which is Texas Tech for medical yes, school. Texas, uh, but prior to that, I went to University of Texas at Austin, which is UT Austin for undergrad. And they're actually one of the biggest football teams here in Texas. You probably have heard of them. Um, and for my cardiology training for fellowship, I went to OU, University of Oklahoma. They're a big Not team. Not a big college school at all, you know, I mean. <laughs> and before that, I did my internal medicine training at Texas A&M. So those are the big four. So all those are the most competitive teams in Texas. And I actually went to all four of them. So what I like to say is that I can never lose a football game. <laughs> so wait, do you have like a shirt or something from every team at this point? Is that what that's about? I or? do actually, believe it or not. But, you know, my alma mater is UT Austin. So um, that's that's what I go back to, UT Austin. But yeah, I having been a part of every single one of these um, big schools, I I can't really feel bad about one of them losing versus the other. <laughs> okay, so I'm I'm a Notre Dame fan. Like that's my main thing. I happen to like Michigan because of uh, I love Jim Harbaugh's coaching style. He's very intense. But Notre Dame, you know, has all these positive cases. Again, that's another thing where it's amazing that didn't happen in game. It happened in practice. Like, imagine that happens in game. It didn't happen for them, so thank God for that. But uh, when Notre Dame did get it, it was just kind of like a, a, a wake-up call, wouldn't you say? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, it, it should be a wake-up call and um, for everybody, uh, yeah. for all teams that are contact sports uh, at all levels, you know, not just professional sports or college sports, but uh, high school sports included. All right, so last night, because, you know, I think college kids have sort of the same mentality of we're not afraid of this, we're, which is exactly what President Trump said yesterday. He said, do not be afraid. I get where he's coming from for that. I agree that we have to live our life. But he didn't mention living it with precaution. That was the only thing about that. 
Um, he didn't say, you know, live your life, but be cautious. He only said, don't be afraid of this and you're going to beat it. And that just seemed out to lunch. But wouldn't that message have been more effective if he said, yes, live your life. Do not be afraid of this, but please be cautious. I think that would have worked better. I completely agree with you. Um, in the medical community, we we do believe that the message would have been uh, more effective if he stated it, stated it the way you're suggesting. Um, you know, people obviously have to live their lives. People have to be able to go to work. Um, those, you know, essential things have to be done, no question about it. So he's right that you have to live your lives. Uh, but at the same time, the message should have been uh, more firm on the fact that we are nowhere close to beating this pandemic yet. Uh, we do not have a vaccine out yet. Uh, so it is very important for us to continue to take the precautions that we've been taking, which is uh, you know, wearing masks, maintaining social distancing, washing hands, all of those. So yes, the message could have definitely been um, better. Now you, I know you've done a lot of different rounds on TV with ABC with other, with all these news outlets. So let's talk about that because as a doctor, are you also frustrated with the way the mainstream media has handled this? Could they have done it? What could they have done differently from a medical perspective that you're that they're not doing right now? Well, um, you know, from a medical standpoint, I, I feel that a lot of times um, mainstream media they focus on you know, what's not happening uh, or how, who said what. Uh, and the main message sometimes gets lost uh, in that. Um, so I think one thing that could have been done better possibly is by bringing in more physicians and putting them in the forefront of media. Physicians who are, you know, trained and, um, you know, who are dealing with COVID patients, talking about their experience, giving real life examples, and making it more uh, visible to patients because, you know, from a patient standpoint or population standpoint, they're not seeing what we're seeing in the, right. in the ICU. And it's sometimes hard to gauge when you just see it in the news, like, or read about it, but to hear, illust you know, like illustrations of real life examples would have made an impact in this pandemic, I believe. So that's something we could have done differently. Uh, and the mainstream media had the opportunity to do that by bringing in doctors from all walks of life, from different parts, not just one doctor or one part of the country, but different right. uh, places to let them have a voice so that they can have a direct communication with the population here in the United States. Well, and I do, you know, I know you might not want to criticize him, and there's really nothing to criticize except the fact that he... Dr. Fauci's messaging was all over the place. Like in February, he said this, then they said, but overall, you know, we've always been told to get a second opinion. I just felt that wasn't the case here. They listened to one guy, one doctor only. And I was like, as you say, there are tons of others that probably could have said something too. Yes. Um, I, I think, you know, you know, to uh, pandemic, you know, and COVID-19 was such a new thing. Really, no one knew what they were talking about initially. Uh, including World Health Organization, CDC, uh, guidelines changed as they got more information um, because simply it, we didn't have enough information. But right. as the pandemic grew, as we uh, you know, it progressed and as we got more information, not just from here in the U.S., but from other parts of the world who experienced it before we did, 
um, we should have been more forthcoming about talking about it and uh, informing the public appropriately in a timely manner. And um, you know, I absolutely think it would have made a difference if we had brought in individual physicians uh, from different parts of the country who are dealing with mass numbers of um, COVID-19, especially the ICU setting, what they were seeing. If people heard some of the stories from these physicians, I, I, I bet you it would have made a difference. In, well, right. Um, and it seems like the Seattle nursing home was kind of like, all right, well, that's our first death. But they didn't really talk to anybody at the nursing home, did they? Like they didn't interview anybody that was treating. Only the times of this article of how they were doing their testing, that's how they found out. Because CDC said, don't do it. They ended up doing it, which was pretty, the word cavalier has been thrown around so much during this time. But apparently that was cavalier to do testing when the CDC shouldn't. But thank God they did, right? Or the nursing home thing wouldn't have been popping up at all. Right, right. Um, nursing home has been, nurse, nursing homes across the entire nation, they've been the hardest hit places for COVID. Uh, we've lost many, many, many uh, nursing home residents to COVID. So there are a lot of discussions actually among uh, big institutions uh, as to how that can be improved in the future to prevent uh, you know, outbreaks like these from happening, like what precautions they can take from an infectious disease standpoint uh, to improve those conditions. Dr. Farah, I would also love you back to talk about healthy foods during this pandemic and after when we see the other side of this. So come back for that. I'd love to get your, your thoughts on that because I know you're writing a book and, and all the recipes. So come back and talk to us about that. But one last thing, um, one thing, you know, they talk about the heart, the lungs, but really the kidney and the liver have also been at risk with this, right? So do you have any advice on that? If you have a kidney, I only have one, yes. by the way, so that's why I'm asking. Yes, um, you're right. So COVID-19 uh, infection for people who are getting sick with it, um, what it's causing is an overwhelming inflammatory response in the body, uh, which is, of course, affecting the lungs and the heart. Uh, but one of the other things it's affecting is the kidneys. People are uh, seen to have acute kidney injury, meaning kidneys are just like not able to keep up with that level of inflammation. Uh, and some of them are actually going into kidney failure. Uh, same thing with liver. Uh, liver is more part of a multi-organ failure system when you are having you know, your pulmonary system fail, uh, heart fail, kidneys fail, liver uh, is, you know, no different. It's a major organ. It also suffers. Uh, one of the ways to prevent that would be, uh, you know, by eating healthy, your food absolutely matters. You know, your mm -hmm. sodium intake, basically risk factors, uh, minimizing risk factors, like make sure your high blood pressure is under check, under control, take mm. your medications as prescribed, make sure your diabetes is under control, make sure your cholesterol level is under control. Yeah. Uh, you know, smoking cessation, this is a good time to think about that for those who are still smoking. Um, sodium is a really big deal when it comes to the kidney. You, uh, you need to watch how much salt you're taking, what kind of food you're taking. So. You know, just briefly, I'll say healthy food means uh, more vegetables, less salt, less fatty cholesterol food. Yeah, I've kind of gone to Splenda for my iced coffee, but it's just it feels <laughs> better. No, actually, and, and the other thing is, is, as we're talking about this, it reminds me that we basically have this structure of symptoms. If you have this, that, and the other, 
but internally we have to look out for the symptoms internally right not just whether we're coughing or not but there's so many more things that that we need to be aware of yeah that's that's right um it's not just externally internally like you know um uh, some people are having different symptoms like you know from what majority are having a lot of patients have told me and we're we're seeing it is one of the signs is hair loss. A lot of people are actually having serious hair loss as a result of uh, COVID, which, you know, we haven't seen any, uh, you know, medical literature on this. So I can't really comment on that with data. There's no real evidence uh, yet. Uh, but, uh, but I am hearing of people just like from patient to patient, they're, um, complaining of that that's been brought up several times in my experience that's that's fascinating um and hopefully i i, I don't know it, it, it seemed like there was a whole bunch of different things that no one were like it through the eyes and all that like it almost sounds sci-fi but i guess there has been proven cases of all of this stuff well dr farah thanks so much for joining me tonight and uh i usually ask this of everybody What's one thing that your patients or your friends or your family, or one thing that nobody knows about you that you're, you're feeling comfortable talking about? Like one thing that no one knows about you. <laughs> well, that's, that's the hardest question yet. <laughs> um, well, I kind of already gave it away, didn't I? I sing and I paint. Uh, most people don't know about that. Um, and um, what else? I guess... I'm kind of a reserved person. It doesn't seem like it because I'm doing all these interviews, but sure. uh, internally I'm actually a shy person. Most people don't know that about me. <laughs> well, I feel like you're the one that uh, type that, you know, just puts their head down and, and gets through the work and then the other stuff will happen, you know, come later, you know, so you just gotta get through the work and, yeah. and then. Uh... Well, I guess I, I can say one other that nobody, I guess, knows about it just yet. I, I'm very big on environmental um, issues, so I um, I promote you know a healthy environment um, uh, because it has an impact on heart. So um, I am part of uh, Global Health Alliance Foundation. I'm actually one of the founding directors, and one of the um, you know we we address several key issues uh, at a global level. One of the issues that we're working on right now is climate change and environment. Uh, so, you know, I've been talking primarily about health-related issues. Uh, so I guess people haven't quite gotten to know about the environment side of things with me yet. So It's interesting you're talking about, you know, global warming and you're in Texas. Not many in Texas seem to talk about it that way, but uh, who knows? If there are more out there who are who are talking um, about climate change and all this other stuff, maybe Texas does go blue at the end of the day. Who knows, right? We have to we have to see. <laughs> That's the hope. One of these days, right? <laughs> hey, uh, Dr. Farah, thank you so much, and uh, we will talk to you soon. Thank you for inviting me on your show. It was a pleasure. I really enjoyed talking to you. Absolutely. I'm Alex Garrett. We'll talk to you soon.